This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Welcome to Health and Living with me, T. Xiao Ik. With the prevalence of chronic health conditions increasing, there is more to the burden than just what the individuals with the condition are going through. Behind the scenes, there are also the caregivers helping the patients to manage their condition, as well as providing emotional and mental support throughout. But who cares for the caregivers? Consultant clinical psychologist Paul Jambunathan joins us to discuss caregiver stress and how to prevent or manage caregiver burnout. Hi, Paul. How are you today? I'm good, Sherwick, recovering from a bad bout of flu and fever and the usual things that go with it. SMI, so the both of us are yeah. <laughs> on the, in the same boat. Um, but I think this is a, this is a, and it's interesting, right? We're both ill uh, and now we're talking about, I guess, sort of the support that comes uh, yeah. with uh, people who are unwell, uh, that, that caregiver role. We, we, of course, focus a lot on the needs and the and the challenges uh, of patients or, or people with conditions themselves, um, but their caregivers um, play such an enormous very role. important role. I mean, we we take we take for granted the the amount of care given at one's domicile or home or anywhere like that. We only think of caregivers as professionals, like in the hospital. The nurses are caregivers. In fact, that's where the studies first started, because nurses were stressed out, mm. and. Um, but as health psychology and clinical psychology expanded, we realized that people are also looking after people at home. Definitely. And upon discharge, there's a lot of stuff that goes on at home which either facilitate or causes deterioration of the, the patient's condition. Mm. So perhaps, you know, we think about who is the caregiver. Um, perhaps the first person you might think of as um, the spouse or the partner. <clears throat> Um, yeah. or, or adult children, right? If we're talking about elderly, depends on the yes. depends on the demographics of the the patient yeah. or the client. Um, if it's a child, of course, it's the mother and parents. So you you have the the primary environment. So you could be living with a host of people, especially in the Asian context. They would be the primary caregivers. But let's say mum and dad are the first for a child. Mum and dad, and then there's siblings involved and maybe the in-laws and relatives who are in and out of the home all the time. Here we've got to throw in a a variable that causes a lot of havoc or a blessing in disguise, the maids, the drivers. And this expands to other people who come and go in the village, your village or your housing area. And finally, of course, politics and the policy. But those closest to the child and the child's daily activities, or in the case of adults, It'll be the partner or spouse, the children, whoever lives in that home. They would be the ones who face the first tidal wave. Mm. What kind of roles do caregivers play? Um, we, we want to sort of really get into the micro of it a little bit yeah. to understand uh, what they're going through in terms of the daily support and care they provide. Okay, the roles, my goodness, they, they play a variety of roles. They wear so many hats. Now, the person, okay, let's talk about, um, let's think about uh, the, the client as a working adult who has a spouse or a partner and children. Now, everything that this person used to do is now has to be done by somebody else. Yes, they're on medical leave. There might be financial constraints. This person had so many duties or responsibilities to undertake. They have to be redistributed. This person may not be able to undertake 
activities of daily living, may not be able to self-care. They need to be washed, bathed, <coughs> um, dressed up. And uh, now in the case of um, that, the client being a woman, modesty is involved. Who's going to change their clothes and inner garments? Um, children, how old are they? Do they understand? Will they be able to participate? Or is it down to just one person? Now, so you become a nurse. You, you, you become the, the, the general practitioner in terms of care. You become the information officer, the financial officer, the CEO. You become everything. And then you've got to lead the whole household because your partner is ill. So the roles are m multiple and you keep, you keep changing hats. So it, it's, it's, it's really going to pull you in all directions. Mm. So then impact, right? By yeah. having to wear these many hats suddenly, uh, often without preparation as well. That's true. It's sudden. Uh, it, it happens. I mean, this impact, if you imagine a pond and you drop a, a pebble, a stone into the pond, you'll find ripples. The point of impact is where the stone hits the water. Then you, that's where you'll find the biggest ripple, the biggest wave. And before you know it, the wave tapers off and disappears. It's gone. But imagine throwing a boulder into that pond. What's going to happen is you'll have this big splash. That big splash is, is the immediate family. They're going to get that. Now, this splash is not upon the person coming home. This splash is probably um, upon diagnosis or even upon discomfort before seeing the doctor. I've got pain in my stomach. I've got pain in my breast. And then they go and see. That's already a cause for concern. Then they go and see the doctor and they get a diagnosis. Death or severe illness is spelled out. That has an impact already. The person goes in for surgery. Another impact. The person comes home and is debilitated. Massive waves and tsunamis. And those closest will either drown or learn to swim. They have to learn to swim and float to help this person stay afloat as well. So those closest to the epicenter of the, the, the tragedy of illness uh, are the ones who are going to be hurt most. Mm. So we, I think the first thing we think about is the physical tasks that they have to take on. Right. Um, like you said, right, uh, if there's surgery involved or after they've been discharged from the hospital and, you know, linked to the roles that they play, right, nursing especially, or juggling all the financial and other domestic uh, responsibilities, Emotionally, what's yeah. the impact? Physical care is, is the least of one's problems. Although, I mean, it, it, sometimes physical care really takes the life out of you, mm. moving, lifting, carrying and all of that. Mm. Now, I'm reflecting on what happened to my dad, for instance. It's a big man. Mom is a frail woman. Um, they're all in the 80s and 90s. And um, we couldn't lift dad from the bed into the wheelchair. Dad used to hurt my back, hurt everybody's back. And then here, mom is trying to be a hero. And she might fall down too. Now, look at the dangers around, surrounding this one thing. And then dad was in pain all the time. Ah, oh, ooh, ah, massage here, pain here. And okay, you can massage, but how do you respond to the emotional can? It hurts us because we can't, we can't alleviate it. So the responsive... The responsibility of being responsive to that person's emotional needs mm. is, a, is a very big demand. And it doesn't go away. It doesn't get easier. Because if you tend to ignore it, you start having other feelings of guilt and, and problems and stuff. Mm. 
And sometimes if you keep always responding to it, um, you start feeling maybe resentment and anger because I'm always giving, 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 and I'm not getting anything back in return. Although the love and care is there, but you still feel these kinds of things, you know, because you're human too. But it's tough. The emotional demands and, respons and resp responsibilities are very, very demanding. Mm. Um, and that's why we all, always have in the professional setting, even for psychologists and nurses and those in critical care, we have debriefing. They need debriefing. They need time off. They need shift duties. Um, and it's important to do that. What about fear and grief of some sort? E even if we are talking about, we're not talking about death yet, perhaps. Right. right? Um, but there's a lot of fear, I think, for the caregiver in terms of what's going to happen to this person they're caring for. How will the disease progress? Um, and is grief, grieving part of that as yes. well? Yes, yeah. I mean, grief is, grief probably comes in way before fear. Fear might be might be, might rear its head when the diagnosis is made, mm. but then when you realize the loss of ability, when you realize the loss of function, when you realize the loss of loss of personality and and the kind of person the pre morbid personality, when all of this is lost, there's a sense of grief not only for the patient but for all those around who say this man was a superman, you know he could do so many things his mind was great and now look at him. Are you? What a sad story! And it hurts more for those who are closer. Of course, those in the in the distant circles of the of this ripple ripple thingy, um, they will also remember the great mind of this great person, but they they're not intimate with the person, so the the loss is not so not so much there. In terms of um, uh, grief and fear, yeah. then when the prognosis is given. When the doctor says, listen, this person is getting worse, um, maybe a year or two, then this fear of death, the fear of total loss, that begins to creep in as well. And, and that produces an urgency, which is another sapping thingy, you know. It saps your energy, it saps your emotions, you can't sleep, and you're fearful all the time. And, you, and because of that, you sometimes become hypervigilant. And hypervigilance causes a lot of drainage of your emotions, your energies, and um, um, your priorities change. What might that look like, hypervigilance? Constantly, constantly paying attention, giving up your time, spending time with the person, hanging around the person all the time, um, not leaving the person for a little while even to go and take a shower. You, it's just like looking after a baby who's crawling. You wait for the baby to sleep, then zoom, you quickly go and do your stuff and come back in. And... It begins to drain you. Um, you don't eat on time. You don't do things on time. You can't leave this person alone. Um, yes, that, that's mm. being hypervigilant. Okay. And so all of that is impact from, um, you know, the, the individual with the condition at the center of it yeah. and the caregivers, how um, their emotions and the, the, the mental toll changes because of what they have to do for the individual. But also at the same time, of course, for the most part, the caregiver's own life completely changes, right? Absolutely. Um, Not just their own life, but the lives of, if it is a hired caregiver or if it's a, child, a son or a daughter, their families are also affected. Yes, yes. And you hear of this happening, people giving up jobs, an adult child who is now taking care of the elderly parent, 
Uh, in fact, you know, moving into the elderly parents' home. So perhaps for that adult child, their spouse then becomes almost like a, a sole parent for, yeah. for that duration. True. So yes, you can see that rippling outwards. Yeah, right? definitely. And you know, Shawik, um, it's documented and it's, it's not uncommon for people who, who are struck with a debilitating disease or a terminal illness as soon as that person is settled at home or within a setting, separation and divorce happens because the spouse cannot cope, the partner cannot cope, and they leave them. It's, very, it's not uncommon. So um, people who have massive accidents and then so much care is needed, divorce, separation. You go, your family look after you, go to a home, I'm off, I need to live the rest of my life. So for somebody looking at that from the outside, you might judge yeah. the Leaving party. Yes. It, many have been judged. Many, many have been judged. Um, it's very hard to, to, to defend the person. Mm. Um, but um, sometimes, sometimes, it, 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 there's, there's a silver lining because if that person was there, they may have been more of an, a hindrance rather than assistance because of their stubbornness or inability and things like that. Well, that depends on how one manages the outcome. Mm. Yeah, and who's able to help in the inner circle. Mm. All right. We'll go for a quick break and come back to continue this conversation. We're talking about caregiver stress today uh, with consultant clinical psychologist Paul Jambunathan. Um, what do caregivers um, for individuals with chronic conditions, or perhaps even uh, it could be an acute um, health issue, what do their caregivers go through? Who cares for the caregivers? Um, how do we recognise their emotional and mental burdens? So we'll come back and discuss this right here on Health and Living BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Health and Living with me, T. Xiao Ik. Joining me today, consultant clinical psychologist Paul Jambunathan. We're talking about caregiver stress today. How do we recognise uh, and uh, support what caregivers are going through because they play such a central role um, in the support and care of people with uh, health conditions, um, especially in the homes after they've been discharged from hospital. There's no longer this multidisciplinary healthcare team there to answer to every need uh, of the patient. It's that sometimes a sole caregiver or, you know, sometimes supported by other family members. Um, we've talked about uh, what are the different roles that they play. We've talked about the impact on the caregivers, the physical uh, impact in terms of the physical duties, but also the mental and emotional toll. You know, you, you said something earlier, Paul, that I want to pick up on and perhaps we can expand on this that trying to be a hero. Ah. I think a lot of caregivers do that, right? Yeah. Um, technically, we often refer, refer to it as the Messiah complex, the saviour. And it's, it, it boils down to only I can. I'm the one who can save and look after this person. But it, you know, is it coming from a place of ego? Yes, it, it can be. It can be. But it, it comes from, it, it's a belief that nobody else can do what I can do. I'm the only one who can look after this person. And it, it's, it's, a, it's, an ex, it's, it's an expectation of oneself that's so ingrained, you begin to think that only you are, the, you are the only person who can do everything for this person and no one else can help. And you don't allow anybody else to help. Or you restrict everybody else from helping. And you, you 
put down or you minimize what other people do and extol what you do and you become the most important person looking after this, the person who's ill. And that's a very dangerous concept because the Messiah or the Savior, the person who has this complex, will start burning out. They will start having a lot of fatigue. They'll burn out and they will themselves develop a lot of diseases, dis-ease, even such things as cancer, um, autoimmune diseases will be triggered, um, as serious as that. But when one is under stress and one has been pulled in many, many directions, um, that person will burn out. It's like burning a candle at both ends. Mm. So, you know, we've gone through sort of like the spectrum of emotional uh, responses uh, because of the duties that caregivers have to take on. Now, how much of that is, you know, manageable for the caregiver? And when does it spill over and um, trigger that burnout? When does it become burnout? Well, there are many, many red flags you can look out for. Some of them as f f by the primary caregiver and those who are assisting this person. Even friends who are observing this caregiver, they, they'll, they'll be able to provide feedback too. Um, I don't know what else to do. I'm feeling powerless. Um, I'm, beginning to be, I'm beginning to work as a robot with this, with this person I love. I'm losing empathy. Um, I'm not becoming too sensitive with this person. I'm feeling exhausted. Always I'm running for this. The person is ringing the bell. I'm always going there, always going there. I have to drop everything I'm doing. You're feeling detached, a little bit more numb, um, increased anxiety, sadness, um, and irritability. You shy away from making decisions. Um, you, don't, you don't want to put your foot down and say, this is what I want to do. And no, you're unable to do that. Your body starts being affected. You have difficulty sleeping. You have nightmares. Um, it can affect every system of the body. Um, ovulation cycles can be affected. Um, um, men and their sexuality can be affected. Hair fall. I mean, you get sense of depression, signs of depression as well. The main thing that will happen overall is neglect of self-care. Um, that, that, that is terrible. So one important thing is primary caregivers, especially long-term, chronic, should go for regular checkups have someone they can bounce ideas off with and seek ways in which they can actually find respite. Yeah. Mm. Um, is it possible for these caregivers to actually hide all these signs? Oh, yes. Yes, they can hide the signs. Um, they can hide it behind um, what we call toxic positivity. <laughs> I'm okay, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. Yeah, yeah, listen, I'm, I'm really good, I'm fine. Hey, hey, I, I can take anything. That's one thing. Um, they can hide it behind religiosity. You know, um, this, is, this is God's will for me and I'm going to go through this. They can hide it behind um, denial, um, duty. Yeah, they, they can use a lot of shields which are socially acceptable. Mm. They're socially acceptable shields unless they kind of go off the rocker in some sense and lose sense of reality. Otherwise, people say, yeah, we cannot challenge these ideas, man. And till this person begins to suffer. But... If we are in the know, we can actually help prevent all of this. This issue of self-care, shall we, is an important bit. People talk about getting uh, what social support. 
that is such a crucial thing in anybody's mental health and well-being, whether you're ill or a caregiver or not. But to have social support is crucial. If, if, if a spouse has fallen ill chronically and, and may be dying in the long term, the carer should have some kind of social support and not necessarily from the other members of the family. Sometimes you need other kinds of social support. And if the, if the spouse is isolated, it makes it even more intense for this person. Um, take, For example, take a child who is in need, of some special need. One important thing is for this child to be exposed to other children, for this child to be exposed to other families with special needs, adults with special needs who know what it means and how this, the child becomes accustomed to other adults. So once in a while, the family is able to feel comfort in saying, feel comfortable in saying, listen, will you babysit my child for two hours today? I, I want to go walk about. And that is reciprocation. But only when you set the tone because your child is comfortable with the other family. And that's where the social support comes in and it's crucial. Um, of course, you vet the people that you work with, but you sit with these people, you discuss you discuss now with Zoom and stuff, it's so much easier. You know, you don't have to sit down in face-to-face -face situations. But you sit down, you talk about alternatives of care. Hey, you know, I do this, do this this way, you know. Wow, I didn't think of that. That's so much easier. And so the social support for, for caregivers is extremely crucial. Now, we're talking about people who are related. There's a, there's a connection. But we have paid caregivers who come in nowadays. They are clinical, detached, you know, you don't even know what they do sometimes um, and how they treat your, your, your loved one. But they're paid in the thousands, $5,000, $6,000, $8,000 a month. And um, they do a pretty good job, some of them. But the others, there's no talk, there's no touch, there's no love. Or someone should be present while this professional is attending to this person and, uh, and keep, keep on, keep the keep the love interaction going on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So even if you do have um, professionals that can carry out the physical tasks... Which is a good thing. Yes, which is important to relieve uh, members of the family. Yeah, and prevent accidents as well. Yes, that's yeah. true. But that emotional connection yeah. is not something you can... You, can you, you can't pay a professional to give no, your... You, you can't get the professional to come in. You can, of course. Many people do this. But the, the professional is, stay is, is what you call it, staying in. Oh, we've got her on duty now. Let's go shopping, guys. Come, everyone go. You know, the professional bathes the person, changes the person, feeds the person, sits with the person in the patio, and we all are having a good time. No, 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 that should not be the case. The case should be that they are there to help with specific areas and specialized areas, while the interaction and the growth of the family should be maintained. Mm. But caregivers need that relief, though, don't they? They, they need the breaks. Yes. They need to be able to take time off to shop. Sh I sure, think, sure, if, sure. If, if sure. They... Arrange for that. Mm. But what I'm saying is it's not, a, it's not an abdication of responsibility. It's not saying, oh, we have someone here, you know, we can dump our dad and move on. No, not like that. No. What research do we have? That emotional connection with the patient, how important is that for the patient's um, well-being, perhaps even their recovery from their illness? Oh, there is a lot of data. There's a lot of data. Um, when I was studying in the UK, years ago, um, it's a famous hospital in Sheffield. 
at Sheffield Children's Hospital. And a very a critical article came out of that hospital where there were two, two children's wings, two wards. Let's call it the east and west wing. And there were two matrons in charge of these wings. One matron was very strict, feed the children, bathe the children, put them to sleep, and that's it, bang, 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 bang. The other wing, that matron was very loving and caring and touchy-feely and all of that and play, play, play. And that culture passed on to all the nurses, as did the other culture. No touching, playing, and nothing in that ward. Here, touch, play, play, everything, and love, love, hug, hug, kiss, kiss. The turnover was a lot better in the, the touchy-feeling ward, and people started leaving the ward. They had longer stay and less recovery in the ward where there was no emotional interaction. Mm. And this goes on. It's gone on throughout. Research has shown throughout the training of doctors and nurses where an emotional exchange and soft, real interaction with the patient or the client definitely plays a big role. Mm. And that's why now we teach psychology in medicine or in nursing, big, big components, big chunks. So all of that is, uh, is to support the importance of ensuring that the caregivers can continue to be well enough to play their emotional roles. Oh, yes. Right? Because um, if the caregiver collapses, I yes. think the care collapses, right? Right, absolutely. Here we no, spot on. Um, when you're in a plane and there's a safety, safety uh, what, uh, program going on, what do they tell you to do? When, when the oxygen mask falls, yeah. what should you do? Put it on yourself first. Put it on yourself first and then on your child. I'm a d dive master, rescue diver as well. And our rule is save yourself first. Make sure you are okay before you help the other person. If not, both are going to be in distress. And that's always the case. Not at the expense of the other person. If not, you'll be a dead hero. But save yourself first. You'll be in a much better position to help the other person. Yes, you can help the person with huge intensity for one month. And then you burn out and you get sick. Then what happens to the other person? But if you, if you spread your intensity a little thinner and look after yourself more to substitute the time and energy, it go, you can go on for ages, especially if you've got a good program, a good protocol in, in place. Mm -hmm. Do you think that it's important for caregivers? Um, I, I know you've talked about self-care already, but also do you think it's important for caregivers to seek professional mental health support? Yes. And when crucial. might that come in? I think as often as you can, because if you already have a person whose um, prognosis is not good um, and you, the doctor would have said, you know, take this person home and um, no need to be warded, message is loud and clear and the person is moving on in maybe a year, six months, you'll, you are in distress. It's, it's recommended that you speak to a counsellor or someone who works in the hospice situation um, yes, they will prepare you for that kind of outcome and they will help you manage your emotions. Mm. Yeah, I'm thinking like um, for caregivers, perhaps they may not recognize all this emotional turmoil that they're going through. Um, and they may feel like all these feelings, exhaustion, guilt, fear, whatever, are just part of my burden to bear. Mm. Um, and does it need to get to the point of some sort of depressive symptoms before they seek professional mental health? That's, mm. Sometimes I'd say it's too late and it might already have consequences that are building up internal and invisible. 
one of the things I would recommend and I often do when, when people come in with a, one a client came in with a recent amputation and um, the wife was more distressed than the, the amputee. And um, the amputee was having all the attention from the occupational therapists, from the surgeon. So the, the patient was well cared for and had so many different people looking after him. And he was a solid guy. The spouse was neglected. Her emotions were neglected. And she's fussing over him. And this the husband is saying, hey, don't fuss over me. Let, give me some independence. You know, I let, let me be. Don't stay awake. You're fussing over me. Cool down. Cool down. No one is addressing her emotions, her fear of loss, her fear that the husband is going to die. Because they said if they do this procedure, he might die. If they, even during this procedure, he might pass on the table. So her, her emotions were totally ignored. But that's where the medical practitioner, that's where the professional has a role to play. And I'm so glad they, they chose to come to see a mental health professional like me. And they work, they're still working things through daily. And now they're thinking of prosthetics. Um, they're thinking of increasing the man's function. But the lady's anxiety of if, he, if he's more mobile, he's going to go to the shop. I'll be alone at home wondering whether he's dead or not. You know, So it, it, it's a give and take, you know, but a seesaw effect. But also every step of the way, there are new anxieties for the caregiver. Of course, it's natural. It is natural. And whether you're curbing and locking, person, locking the, the person into a, in a cage just for your sake and your well-being mm-hmm. is a question that needs to be asked. Yeah. So, you know, if they come, the caregiver themselves sees a mental health professional like you, how do you help them? In what areas or what kind of skills could you help them with? Well, first, the most important thing is um, problem definition. The most important thing is how you define the problem, what the problem is. And it's often diffuse and it's often multiple. Once you've identified the various issues, you now have to decide on what you're going to challenge. And often it's problem solving, maybe time management, maybe self-care, maybe some cognitive behavior therapy to help them consider restructuring the way they think about issues and how they are perceiving things. Um, or dealing with their own fears, increasing communication between client and the patient and the, the parent or the partner, spouse, child, family, um, family therapy together, children who are visiting, children who are staying in, getting maids involved too, because sometimes maids and, and other people undermine the protocol that's set in place. Yes, so it, it is... Mm. It is the main st- first step is problem identification. Yeah, and that's really interesting because um, I think that may be such a huge barrier in itself because perhaps in their minds, the problem they want to fix is something just too huge or it's beyond their reach to fix. And, 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 and diffuse, it's undefinable. Mm. You know, they really don't know what it is. I, 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 I don't even die. Yeah. yeah but so what, what, how are you going to go about it? What, what are you doing? What, what's the problem? Uh, he's doing this. No, no, no. Uh, this is okay, but what is it causing you to do? And maybe it's because the, the reaction maybe is because of the effect it's having on them and their perception of it. But we, as caregivers, perhaps they may not even think of themselves. They are their own needs. They are always thinking in terms of their patients. Very, very well put. It's a very interesting concept, Shawik. Um, overtly, I don't see many. Uh, caregivers who are absolutely selfish. We're going to keep that person alive because I want that person alive. 
you know, for me, for me. Don't do this to me. Don't leave me. You cannot leave me, you know. Um, I've, of course, I've come across one or two like that. But otherwise, it, there is selfishness behind the fact that they're so giving because they want to give, they want to care, they want, but they're not sure, of, they, they're not really aware of the reasons behind it. Could be selfish, but it's so altruistic. And it, it's to serve your own purpose. Now, if that's going to, to make, it's going to, what, to make the person powerless, uh, disempowered, just to, be, to lie in a wheelchair and you know, lie in bed and not do anything, that's defeating the purpose of, of a patient in recovery. Mm, all right. Now, do you come across caregivers you know, who need mental health, uh, professional help, but can't be convinced to take it on? refuse yeah. it, um, yeah. deny it. Yeah, I, I, I remember a case uh, where a person was diagnosed, a spouse was diagnosed with cancer. The whole family wanted to look after the spouse and chip in and help with treatment. But um, the, the partner decided no, purely for family politics. No, I'm taking this person home and I'm going to look after this person myself, mm -hmm. which did not happen. Um, so the patient finally died at home without their relatives and nobody else. But it was selfishness, pure selfishness, and maybe um, uh, some kind of denial on their part. But it was a very, very sad case. How do caregivers move on if the person that they have dedicated their life to um, does finally pass? Yes. Um, they've sort of uh, framed their identity around this person as well. I'm the caregiver, right? And it could have dragged on for many years. Um, how do they move on? How do they sort of redefine themselves after that? Um, immediately, my response is twofold. One is, if the process of caring for this person, you know, throughout the illness and towards the end and during the dying process, um, if this... If, if that whole caregiving process was well managed and death was anticipated, then there is just a continuum. And this person has got their own quality of life with all the social support, family support, hobbies and, and activities of daily living, all carrying on. That's great. So that's one response. The other response is um, this person is healthy, you know, self-caring, but dedicated all their lives to this, all their life to this person during this chronic stage, uh, the person will go through a grief period, but redefinition of yourself and what you mean to the world, what you mean to your children, or what you mean to your friends and society, and what you can do—that's um, that's how to go about it. Um, sitting down and mourning, mourning the loss, making the loss significant, making the loss me meanful, uh, meaningful. And um, being able to live through those days, you know, no one has to jump up and go parachuting the next day or go, go dive, scuba diving the next day. No, but um, being able to slowly get back to routine, which is going to be different, but routine that's meaningful for this person and brings out this person's best in themselves too. But what's important is that this person must be genuine about themselves. It's not a show to show the rest of the family or the immediate circle or the secondary circle saying, I'm okay, I'm okay. But inside, they're burning away and rotting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, I think just uh, if we want to wrap up now, 
Let's talk about some practical things um, that caregivers can do in terms of um, self-care and preventing burnout. What can caregivers um, do on a daily basis um, to prevent compassion fatigue and caregiver burnout? Well, um, we, we often have um, lectures that we deliver to nurses and, um, and uh, when we talk to support groups, um, families with special needs and people with chronic debilitating diseases, critical diseases, illnesses, uh, we, we have a list. And th- the list has a whole, whole bunch of do's and don'ts. They start with, uh, don't blame others. You know, what can be done, done. Whoever is responsible is in charge of it. Um, uh, don't resign and swing to extremes. Okay, you do. I don't know if there's a disagreement. You want to do, do it this way. I, I give up. I don't. No. We have that. Very, very, it's very, very common. Um, don't become defensive. Um, you know, don't, don't start um, self-medication. You know, you will start feeling pains and stuff like that. And then you'll have, you'll have what we call pseudo-scientists or pseudo-doctors who'll say, take Panadol, take this, take that, take this cough mixture. Um, all that is out. Don't do that. Don't neglect your own needs and your own interests. Practice what you preach. Don't practice what you preach sometimes because sometimes what you practice is wrong. Um, and don't, don't, don't think you're the only person who can make a difference to the client's life. Mm-hmm. Yes, you can make a difference. But the addition or the involvement of other people could actually enrich the experience. <clears throat> but there's a, there's a long list of do's. Find someone to talk to. Join a support group. Um, uh, start, start looking after your body. Start looking after your mind. Um, kind of do puzzles. Do, watch TV. Watch your favorite program. Take a few minutes off when you have someone that who can have provide some respite care, or when the baby or the client is asleep. Um, educate yourself. Oh, that's very important. Keep updated as to, the in, as to information regarding this person's illness, the latest things. Keep talking to the, to the experts, to the doctors. Have constant communication with them, either directly or through um, intermediaries of other nature. And, in, and on the flip side, it's important for the healthcare professionals to acknowledge, right, that yes. they need to communicate with the caregivers then and give them that information. E- extremely important. I mean, the kind of doctor that you have, the kind of caregiver that you have is crucial, you know. Yeah. And the, the better the match, the better the outcome. Correct. Whether the, there's going to be death or not, uh, it will make a more peaceful, pleasant, acceptable passing. Yeah. Know your limits. I cannot lift this person, like like my mom. You know, mm-hmm. although she tries and and she wants to lift dad as much as possible, move him around. Mm-hmm. Um, both sometimes both end up on the floor Ayyoh. in slow motion, <laughs> <laughs> and then all, all of us will come around. But know your limits. Find a special place for yourself and your activity. Um, I, I I'll use my mom as an example again. When she's when she has some time off, she'll be in the garden. She loves her garden plucking weeds from the gra- on the grass you know and she lo- it, it, it's a very mindful activity practice mindfulness sit down s- close your eyes let all invas- invasive thoughts disappear collect yourself meditate read up on positive psychology uh, positive psychology doesn't mean uh, negating negative thoughts positive psychology talks about how you can actually um, 
develop a sense of happiness through various other means, preventing illness before it actually rears its head. Um, set a to-do list of things other than the client or the patient. So th there are a lot more things there, but what one of the things I would extol is join a support group of some nature. Have regular visitors. Keep yourself active. Crucial. Mm. Very, very crucial. Mm. And, uh, you know, just for the rest of us then, if we have care uh, people among our family and, uh, and friends who are in that primary caregiver role, what can we do for them? Provide exactly what we we're talking about. Mm. Um, if, if they are important enough for you to, to be involved in and you love them, volunteer for some respite care once in a while, one hour. Don't make it, don't, don't write it in stone that every Wednesday I'll be there because that's not going to happen. Something will come up somewhere. But pick up the phone and chat for a little while. Provide an hour of respite care where this person can actually go and have a long shower. Or come and pick them up and take them to get their hair done. Can I help you with some shopping? Yes, you can do the shopping for them. But what would be better is if you can pick them and take them shopping because they need to get away too. And not making them feel guilty about neglect. But everything else needs to be in place. You know, so one can do things like that yeah. nicely. Cook a meal and take it to that person's home. So there's so many creative ways of looking after one another. You know, we're a very collectivistic society. We, we are... As humans within a society, we are very loving, you know, very caring. Strangers stop by the roadside to help an accident case. And they will do all kinds of lovely things to, to, to help that person. We have it in us, a very innate sense of responsibility for a fellow human being. Do you have a final message, Paul? Caregivers, please read up and look up and, and practice what we call self-care. If you're a caregiver, you will start with self-care first. Yeah. Put that best. mask on yourself before yes. you can That's put right. it on for the person you're caring That's for. That's right. Thank you so much, Paul. I've been speaking to Paul Jambunathan, consultant clinical psychologist about caring for caregivers, right here on Health and Living, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.